Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right. Matthew chapter 5. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Matthew 5, first book in the New Testament. As we mentioned last couple weeks, we are beginning a series for the balance of this year, likely through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. We just ended a series through 1 Thessalonians. Robert preached an outstanding message. It's the standalone message on Ephesians 5 last week. If you missed it, if you were away for Labor Day, I encourage you to grab that. CD's on the back. Everything's on the internet as well. But this morning, we settled down. We're going to begin a journey through Probably one of the most famous, most often quoted, and probably misapplied passages, chapters, texts in the whole Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. So while you're finding that, as always, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to use one of the ones in the seat back in front of you, the rack in front of you. You can find it on those page numbers, 633 or 809. If you don't own a Bible, keep that Bible. It's our gift to yours. So as you're finding Matthew 5, let me mention uh, one thing to you. Tonight, we're having our uh, every other month one another meeting. We generally do that on the first Sunday night of every month, but since last weekend was Labor Day weekend, we pushed it back to this Sunday night. So this is a particularly important meeting. This is something that is for members. Uh, We really encourage you to be there if you're a member, but it's also for anybody, just anybody that wants to come, even if you're not a member, we, we encourage you to come, and it's a great way to meet people and to find out more about the life of the church. What we do in these meetings is we do this kind of family business. We'll have a few testimonies about some mission trips that have gone on. Um, and uh, one important issue that we have to do tonight is, if you remember, we talked a few months ago about how, some changes that we have needed to make as a church to our constitution and bylaws, our operating documents, because of the Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage and we needed to do some things to protect us as a church from, you know, our, our biblical stance on marriage and how the culture may view that. And so we need you to come, and especially if you're a member, and uh, we put a revision to our bylaws forward last week, or last two months ago, and we need you to act on that tonight. We're asking you to, to affirm those changes, and that's something that we need the whole membership to do. It's not just something that the elders should do. And then, uh, really exciting tonight... Um, we are going to be promoting Springer Kane from just the position of a staff member administrator to assistant pastor. And he has served us for the last few years, and he has done a fantastic job of leading the church administratively and then also overseeing our missions and has gone through some in-house intense pastoral training and theological equipping. And tonight, we are going to be installing Springer as an assistant pastor, so Robert won't be the only assistant pastor anymore. There will be one other, but it would be a wonderful encouragement to Springer if you were able to come tonight, and we will lay hands on him and pray him, pray for him, and, um, and just set him off into uh, pastoral ministry. Really, really encouraged about that. So come out tonight, 6 to 730, and uh, join us and be part of the, the family. All right, well, this morning we want to begin. In fact, today we're going to read the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. But 
this morning isn't going to be so much an exposition of those 12 verses. In fact, for the next three weeks, we're going to be in this first chunk of this Sermon on the Mount, these 12 verses. And we're going to pull them apart. We're going to look at the Beatitudes in more closer detail the next few Sundays. And then in the coming Sundays, this, this sermon really sets up nicely as just little chunks of truth. But today what I want us to do is to think about how we should approach. We're going to do a, a sort of introduction into the Sermon on the Mount and its place in the life of a Christian, its place in the Bible, its, its place in the life of a church. And so here's the burden that I have this morning. I think that, as I mentioned before, that these three chapters are often some of the most well-known, often quoted, but misunderstood and misapplied verses, words in the whole Bible. And so I, wanna, I want us to be very careful to have a, a good understanding of how we should approach these chapters because these chapters, this instruction from Jesus, the longest recorded sermon of Jesus in the Bible, oftentimes is used unwisely by people to be just mere moral maxims on how we should live or attempt to live. And the problem with that is that many people think that these are just sort of teachings or moral ethical standards that Jesus is laying down that if we will do our best to live up to them, then Jesus will accept us and we will live out the implications of this Christian life. The problem with that is that it unwittingly, I think, turns the gospel upside down. You see, as we work through this over these coming months, one thing that I hope that we will see is that really apart from God's sovereign grace, apart from His first initiating grace to cause us to go from death to life, we can't do what we are commanded to do in these scriptures, in this in these chapters. And so this isn't something that we should attempt to do so that God will accept us. This is something that we can't do unless God has first made us alive. And once he has made a people alive, then these words become not legalistic regulations that they are supposed to do so that they are morally superior to the rest of the people out there. But these words in these three chapters become an ethic, a, a sort of rule by which his people live, a, a beautiful standard which then his people, because he's made them alive, are enabled to pursue so that by the way they live together, God uses their life together to be a display of his glory to an onlooking world. So this is really not about individual morality. It's about a new kingdom ethic. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to work through three questions. And I want to give you the three questions up front, and it's going to be on the screen. We're going to do a lot of Bible reading today. We're going to fly. This is going to be big fire hose, little mouth. So buckle up right now, and um, don't spill your coffee. It's okay if you sip on it, but we're going to be, uh, we're going, to be going about 80 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone this morning. So here are the three questions I want us to ask as we introduce the Sermon on the Mount. What is the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount in the Christian life and in the life of the church? What is the purpose? The second question we want to ask is where does it fit into God's plan? Where? We're not just going to parachute down into three chapters and rip them out of the rest of the context of the Bible. We want to 
we want to have a, a sense of where it fits in God's plan. And then the third question we'll handle briefly is how should we understand the kingdom of God? And that's going to be the, the dominant theme through these months as we go through this, this kingdom, this culture of the kingdom that we're striving for to build here as God's people so that this culture that we have together as God's people in a local church will be an aroma that God uses to draw unbelievers to himself. I mentioned to you a couple months ago we were in Uganda and they cook food out on the streets in Uganda and I can remember this one little neighborhood that we'd pass by a lot during our week there and they would, I mean the smells were just so good. This this meat and bread being cooked out on the streets and it just drew you in. You just wanted to go to these places that were preparing this food. And these words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 should serve as a, as a church pursues these words, should serve as an aroma that should cause a world to want to look and see and savor and find out who Jesus is. Well, let me read and then we'll pray and work back through. Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, again, we're not going to, this Sunday at least, expound very closely on these 12 verses. We'll leave that for the next two. But we're going to look at an overarching view of how we should approach this whole Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Oh, how privileged we are that we can be your people to gather in a comfortable place and open up your word and sing to you and pray to you and study your words. Lord, I pray that you would give us a picture of what life should be, what it could be, and shall be. Use these words to make this church more into the image of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that also you'd use these words in the coming weeks to draw unbelievers to yourself. And I pray that you would do this all for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. So question number one, what is the purpose of this sermon in the Christian life and in the life of the church and in God's grand scheme. Well, there's a a couple views. Let me mention a couple before we settle down on what I think is the proper view is that many people, and I think this is liberal 
theologians in the past century and really throughout the history of the church see the Sermon on the Mount as, as merely principles for good living. If we would just apply these principles, then God will usher in His kingdom and we can sort of, in a sense, produce God's kingdom by trying our best to live these, these maxims out. And if we do, then you know, people will stop harming each other, war will be banished, troubles will be ended. If we would just do a better job of being peacemakers and living this way. And this ethic and this moral way of living is itself these people that would hold to this view would see it as kind of the gospel itself. The gospel or the good news they would believe, I think wrongly, is this good way of living. Of living. This was uh, a, the theological perspective of much of Europe in the beginning of the 1900s. And that's why many of the churches and much of Christianity in Europe is lost. And they had this sort of utopian view. If we just do better at living together in peace, then you know, then the, the kingdom will come. Two world wars fought primarily on Europe's soil put a damper on that perspective. But even still today, we see seeds of this in, in I, I think, Christians that I think misunderstand the message of the gospel. And they think that if we can just do good works, that really being a Christian isn't so much primarily about our personal offense against a holy God whom we need to be reconciled to through the work of His Son, they see that as very secondary. In fact, they would sort of discount that sort of perspective on the gospel. And they would say that being a Christian is about doing good works and helping the poor and caring for the the less fortunate, which of course are important things to do. But you see that when you make those things primary, you you miss the main point of, of the Bible that we are sinners and that we've offended our holy creator God and we, our primary need, is not our horizontal relationship but our relationship with the holy God. And in fact, we can't do anything horizontally until we are made right vertically with a holy God. So that's, that's very dangerous, that sort of view of the Sermon on the Mount, because it fundamentally misunderstands human nature. Our problem is not that we need to do better, because we can't do better. Our problem is that we are dead and we need to be made, made alive so that we can finally live for God. So that's one perspective, one view. Another view is that, and I think maybe this is probably something that many more of us have, have been exposed to, especially those of us that have maybe grown up in the Bible Belt, although this exists everywhere. It's a, a legalistic view of these, these words in the Sermon on the Mount. And this approach sees the Sermon on the Mount as, an, as a kind of continuation of their misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. That this is just kind of, you know, God's out to get you. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go to rated R movies. And if you do, sneak into back so nobody from the church will see that you're there. Right? And if you, if you do that, if you watch that show, if you do, you know, go there with that person, God's going to get you for that. In fact, I grew up with a guy that went to a church that they used to, at the end of services at times, and I guess they thought this was revival, they would have this kind of Jericho march around the sanctuary where they would say, God's going to get you for that. And somebody would throw out, you know, some particular social ill or sin, you know, watching TV, and they'd, God's going to get you for that. 
You know, that's silly. But, but, but really, subliminally, a lot of people view the Bible, and especially these imperatives and these commands, as a sort of God's going to get you. Like God is angry, and he's carrying a big stick, and he's just waiting to whack you. And what happens when we view oftentimes the Bible this way, especially the imperatives of Scripture like we're going to read in Matthew 5, is don't we tend to emphasize the things that we're good at and minimize the areas where we're failing and we tend to look at other people and maximize their failing, failings and minimize their strengths, don't we? And so it's kind of like, well, it, well, it's called hypocrisy, friends, isn't it? Yeah. I think both of those views are wrong. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to, and we'll put it up here on the screen, it's to give God's people a picture of what life should be like, what life could be like, and what life will be like in the kingdom of God. So I'll read that again. The purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to give a picture of what life should be like. Now let's not miss that. As we work through these coming months, these statements by Jesus are not suggestions. They are commands. We need to fight sin. But in a sense, this imperative, we can't do this unless God does something to us first. And not only is it what it should be like, but once God does make us alive by his sovereign grace, and that's the gospel, and we're going to keep coming back to that, this then is not just how we should live, but because God has made us alive, this is how we can, how we are enabled to live. Of course, we won't do it perfectly here in these remaining years of our life on this earth. But then the rest of our life is looking forward to this beautiful, peaceful kingdom where Jesus reigns and has all authority and sin is finally vanquished and it shall be as all as it should be in that day. And so this sermon gives us a picture of what that life should look like in the kingdom of God, what the culture of the kingdom is. However, in order to fully understand this, we need to understand everything that has gone, up, uh, gone on in God's plan, in his story, up to this point. So this leads us to our second question, and it is, where does this sermon fit into God's plan or an overview of the Bible up to this point. So five statements. We're going to overview the whole Old Testament here in five statements. So buckle up, boys and girls. We're about ready to put it into fifth gear. Five statements that I think summarize the Bible up to this point in Matthew chapter 5. One is that God creates, man falls, Sin ruins everything, and God promises to restore. So let's read a, a little bit of Scripture. You can flip around with me, or you can just see it on the screen, because we're going to read a lot. So God creates. He creates everything. Not just good, but very good. He creates it out of nothing. The Trinity was not up in heaven lonely, and they sort of ran out of things to do, so they needed us. God doesn't need us, but as an overflow of his glory for his joy, not because he needed anything, but because he wanted to, God created everything out of 
nothing. That's what Genesis chapter 1 is about. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 1, we read in verses 26 and 27, he creates as the pinnacle of his creation mankind. So verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So God creates. He creates mankind specifically to be his image bearers on the earth. But we read as we went through Genesis about a year ago that things take a south downward turn very quickly. And in Genesis 3, we see that mankind, Adam and Eve, rebel against God and plunge God's creation into ruin. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that, that, that Eve and Adam rebel against God and then God ushers and utters this curse against Adam and Eve and against the enemy, the serpent, the devil who tempted them to to sin. And this is what he says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we see even though God has created, man has fallen, now sin ruins everything, we see this glimmer of hope where God promises to restore. Genesis 3, verse 15, God speaking to the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So he's saying to the serpent, She's going to have offspring, you're going to have offspring, and they're going to be at war with one another. And he, meaning the offspring of the woman, Adam, shall, the offspring of the woman, Eve, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So that's very shadowy language there. It's very, it's very hidden and disguised and just sort of like pearl form, just seed form. But what God is pointing to there is he's saying this woman, Eve, that you have deceived is going to have an offspring and he eventually will be the one who crushes your head. And who is that offspring as we read the rest of the Bible? It is the promised seed, the man, the second man, the new man, Christ Jesus. So even right after the fall, we see that God promises to restore his people. There are some important implications in all of this. First, we need to recognize that the fall, that the way things are, did not sneak up on God. So the fall in Genesis chapter 3, it's not like the Trinity is up there sort of high-fiving each other saying, man, this is going great. We did awesome. And then when they looked away, oh, oh, snap, Adam's... Being passive, not leading his wife, she's taking a bite of the apple. Ah! Friends, we read later on in the Bible that all of this happened in some mysterious, providential, good purpose of God because he says of this child that later on would become this offspring who is God the Son, Jesus in the flesh, that he was slain, that he would die that the plan of his work on the cross to be born, to become a man, to die on the cross, to rise again over sin and death and all of its consequences in victory, that he was slain before the foundations of the earth. So I know, look, don't check out on me. I know you're tired from spending too much time watching football yesterday, but this is an important concept. Think about this for a second. God 
created a world in which he knew would fall, is not guilty for it in any way. That's a mystery. We have a difficult time putting those two truths together. And planned for the redemption of a people from this world and the ultimate restoration of all things for the display of His glory. So that means nothing that happens... You Presbyterians are about to get excited, right? (laughs) Nothing that happens according to the Westminster Confession of Faith. I believe it's paragraph 3 or article 3, paragraph 1. Nothing happens outside of His orderly arrangement. I may be mixing up creeds. That may be the Belgic Confession uh, written by that guy Guido Berez who was actually Dutch but had an Italian name. Fascinated with that all the time. But nothing happens that God does not in some wise, mysterious, good way ordain. That's what the confession says. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass yet in good and gracious ways for his wise purposes. So that means that if the greatest tragedy in the universe, the fall in the garden and the crucifixion of Jesus, first it plunged humanity into despair, and secondly, the Son of God, the Holy Eternal Son of God, being crucified, that the Bible says God predestined to take place, then let's put everything that's out of joint in our lives underneath those things, and if God is in control of those two things, He's in control of our lives. He's in control of America, who the president is. He's in control of Planned Parenthood. He's in control of ISIS. He's in control of a European stock market. He's in control of computers in China. He's in control of everything. That's a whole lot better than that amen, by the way. So point number one, God creates, man falls, sin ruins everything, and God promises to restore. Let's keep going. Statement number two. God calls out Abraham to make a people to display his glory. So things have fallen. What does God do? Does he just snap his fingers and make everything instantly okay? No. God in his patience and long-suffering, his eternal patience, begins a process of restoring a people for himself to be a display of his glory so that through these people he would redeem a whole host of people from every tribe and tongue and nation over the century. So Genesis chapter 12, we spent some time going through this a few, uh, about a year or so ago. Genesis 12, God, as this world is plunged into lostness, God calls out one man, Abram, who will become Abraham. And he says in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you, of you, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all, listen to that, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chooses one man who's wandering with his dad out in the desert. And we read later on in Joshua that it's not because Abraham was a good guy, but it's because God decided to set his love on Abraham. And he calls Abraham out and says, through you, 
I'm going to make a people not because I love this particular group of people at the expense of everybody else, but God says, I'm going to make a nation through you, Abraham. That becomes the nation of Israel. And I am going to so work in the hearts and the minds of these people that they are going to be a picture of what life is like when you obey the king. And this nation Israel then becomes the seed of the church in the New Testament. And again, this people of God in the Old Testament and New Testament, God is saying, I will make myself a people and through the way these people live together in submission to my gracious rule, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. That brings us to statement number three on where this fits in God's plan or an overview of the Bible. God calls out a people. He makes a people through Abraham. And then he tells them how to live. But they continue to be enslaved by sin. So we, uh, again, we spent a great amount of time going through the journey of God's people. And it was strangely encouraging because because. Being God's people doesn't mean that you're perfect. God called Abraham and he had a bunch of sons and grandsons and the rest of Genesis after Genesis 12 um, sounds a lot like a Jerry Springer episode. It is an absolute train wreck. God's people are a mess, right? And that holds out great hope for us because God's, we're a mess. And yet God is patient with these people. And then at the end of Genesis, they find themselves in captivity because of their own rebellion against God, because of their disobedience. And God raises up a leader named Moses. And this man, Moses, becomes the deliverer of God's people. He becomes a kind of shadow of that promised offspring, that savior king to come, Jesus, who will deliver his people. And he tells Moses, lead my people, say to Pharaoh, Set my pe- let my people go. God miraculously rescues his people from Egypt. And friends, what is Egypt? Is it just, what is the rescue of God's people from Egypt? Is it just a story that we can you know, teach our kids about, you know, how you should be courageous. No, friends, the, the, the rescue of God's people from Israel in the Old Testament out of Egypt is a picture of how anybody who has ever come to Christ is saved. We are enslaved by sin, and not because we mustered an army and attacked Pharaoh and did it ourselves or made ourselves better, but because God in his sovereign grace miraculously rescued people from slavery. Friends, that's the message of the gospel and we see it in Exodus chapter, or at the beginning of Exodus. And then God gives them gracious rules. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And he continues on and he gives nine more. And then he gives many, many, many more rules and gracious statutes that are not meant to mess with his people. But he gives them this law to mark them off so that they would become a picture of what it looks like to submit to God. Now here's the thing about this law. This law was never intended to be, to be the thing that saves them. In fact, we read in the New Testament that this Old Testament law was meant to be a kind of tutor, like a, like a teacher that 
shepherds them, that brings them to God. And how does the law bring God's people to him? Well, think of it in these three ways. The law brings God's people to him by showing us what is right. This is how you should live. By showing us what is wrong. This is how you shouldn't live. But really, at its core, the law, God's command, is meant to show us what is needed. And what is needed? We need somebody other than ourselves to obey the law for us. You see, the law, in a very real sense, is meant to produce a sense of desperation and failure in us, not so that we can do little bits and pieces of the law and say, "Uh uh-huh, I can do this, and then we look down the end of our nose at other people who can't do their little bits and pieces of the law. No, the law is meant to bring us to a place of despair because we can't do it, so that we would throw our hands up and say, God, we need you. And God gives his people this law, but they continue to be enslaved by sin. Statement number four. Despite the fact that his people are enslaved, you see, you can, you can be rescued from Egypt and you can be freed from the exterior captor, but here's the problem with the Israelites and here's the problem with every human. The problem isn't so much out here. The problem is in here, Right? And so we need to be saved from more than just external Egypt or the world around us. We need to be saved from this internal sin. And so God promises to save his people by sending a savior king who will establish his kingdom and his reign and his rule. Now this isn't just coming out of nowhere. Remember, who is this savior king? Of course, we know it's Jesus, but This isn't like, oh, things have gone poorly in the Old Testament, so God needs to come up with a plan B. No, remember, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that there's coming an offspring through this woman who will crush the serpent's head. And then the rest of the Old Testament is a further elaboration, a pointing towards of this Savior King that will come. So let's read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and seven. For this is not just a Christmas passage. This is, this is an incredible truth about what the Old Testament is pointing to. Isaiah 9.6 For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying that there's coming a king and he is God. He will sit on his throne and he will rule and reign in righteousness. He will come, but he will come not first primarily through power and judgment, but he will come as a suffering servant. So if we fast forward to Isaiah 53, we read how this king will come, this Jesus, this Savior King. It says in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, speaking of this Savior King, 
He was despised and rejected by men. So this is the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, prophetically speaking about this Savior King Jesus and how he will establish his kingdom. And realize how contrary this was to the hopes of many of God's people at this time. They were in captivity. By this time, they had been rescued from Egypt. They wandered in the desert. They went to Babylonian captivity and to Assyrian captivity. And now at the beginning of the New Testament, in Jesus' time in Matthew, they're under Roman rule. And so they're wanting, they're wanting God to rescue them from the exterior, from the political rule of yet another captor. But God has a deeper and more eternal work, not just external rule, but he has this internal problem that he wants to take care of in his people. And so the Savior King doesn't come first to vanquish the exterior kingdom, but this Savior King comes to die for the interior sin of God's people. So he says in verse 3, the prophet, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we, deemed him, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced. This is the king. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Friends, this is the king. And he was for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the people, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of God the Father to crush the Son, the Savior King. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. His knowledge shall, shall he, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So this Savior King, by taking the punishment of his people, on his own shoulders makes his people righteousness. So friends, this is the very heart of the Bible. This is the very heart of the gospel. The king's work is most primarily not to come and say, this is how you should live, subjects. Do your best. And those of you that hit this mysterious mark of good enough deeds, I will accept as subjects of my kingdom. That's not the work of the king. The king comes, sent by the Father, to subjects who are running away from him in rebellion, unable to live according to his rule. And the king says to the Father, I will take their punishment. 
And my righteousness, my holiness, my obedience, I will offer it up on the cross and then you crush me even though I'm innocent. Their punishment shall be put on me and they shall receive my righteousness. So I will make them righteous by taking your judgment on me. Friends, that is the gospel. That's what the king does. And then that leads us to the fifth and final statement. The Savior King has come to free His people now so they can live for Him. So in Matthew, we read in Matthew 1 and verse 21, it says that she, this woman, Mary, shall bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So remember what we read in Genesis 3. That there's coming this offspring, this baby, who will crush the serpent. And here he is. There's this, another woman, Mary. And she has this offspring of Eve. This human, but God in the flesh. And he will save his people from their sins. And then we read in Matthew chapter 3 where this man, Jesus, is baptized, where this king identifies with his people. And then we read in Matthew chapter 4 where this king who's been baptized and identifies with his people now is tempted on their behalf and he's tempted by the devil. And then later on in Hebrews we read that he's tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. So this king doesn't stand afar off commanding this king comes takes on our flesh, bears our burden, fights sin for us, and defeats it. And then lays down his life, at the end of his life, he lays down his life on the cross to redeem a people for himself. But at this point, before the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus at the end of chapter 4, verse 17, after his baptism and after his temptation in the desert, in verse 17, now announcing the kingdom. Verse 17, he says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he's saying is I'm beginning my work and I'm going to live a perfect life and I'm going to lay down my perfect life on the cross. I'm going to make a people for myself. All of the Old Testament that was pointing forward to this Savior King. The King is here. And I'm establishing my kingdom. And I'm going to make a people for myself. And I'm going to make them alive so that they can live together in a way that displays the glory of God. So that what God promised to his people years ago can finally be fulfilled as Jesus, the Savior King, bears the wrath of God, makes the people alive, and enables them to live for him. Friends, that's what we're doing here. But here's, let's confess something. That, doesn't that sound sort of big and historical and kind of large and 30,000 foot? Why does it feel so, sort of like, oh yeah, that seems sort of so global and like good, God's big grand purposes? You know why it feels sort of foreign to us to think of the Bible storyline in that way? Because we're individual Americans. And we have boiled down Christianity into just mere little personal things that if I just make this little transaction with God, I can do it, secure my destiny, 
and kind of pick and choose from a smorgasbord of sort of commands in the Scripture, the things that I'm good at and make myself feel good about it, and then go my merry way and not have any real call on my life. But that's not life in the kingdom. So let's end with this, with this last question. How should we understand the kingdom of God? How should we understand these words, this kingdom that Jesus said is here? It's at hand. Well, first, the kingdom of God, it, it, it's here. It's Jesus, the king, has come. He's reigning. It's at hand. Wherever the reign of Christ, the king, is being manifested, the kingdom is there. So we, we see the rule and the reign of Jesus, the king, in the work of God in the world today. We'll read from Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, where it says that he has delivered us and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. So we are most, most, firstly, citizens of God's kingdom. If we're Christians, we, the kingdom is here. It rules and reigns now. It's here. Jesus is ruling and reigning. But for his divine purposes, to display his glory, to be patient, to be long-suffering so that he can bring more people into his kingdom, he has given the, the, the prince of the power of the air, the devil, a certain measure of authority in this earth. So Jesus' kingdom is here, but it's not yet fully established, right? I mean, things are still out of joint. And so we are sort of in this in-between time where Jesus is reigning He came first as a lamb and we're in between this period where he's coming again as a lion when he will fully and finally vanquish evil and all of its effects. And we are living in this middle period as people of the kingdom established but not yet fully consummated and that's where we live now. The kingdom is here. Secondly, the kingdom is is in his people. It's, it's in us, right? The kingdom exists in our, it dwells in us through the reign of Christ, the spirit of Christ that lives in us. Listen to Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's obviously the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the King lives in his people. And he then knits his people together to be a a group of people, a body that become his church to display his glory. So the kingdom is not only here, it's in here. And then finally, the kingdom is yet to come. There's coming a day when all evil, when all sin, all remaining rebellion in you and me and everything that's against God in this world will finally and fully be eradicated. And so know where we are in history. We are in between the establishing of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. And in the meantime, God has given us this picture of life in the kingdom, not so that we can be individuals that come and pick and choose from bits and pieces that we want to live by to help us navigate through life more successfully, but he has 
put his people as a kind of embassy in the middle of a dark land and kingdom that he is conquering slowly. He has established his kingdom in this dark kingdom of the world through the church and he is slowly, slowly growing his kingdom until that time when the king comes again for a second time and fully and finally vanquishes evil. And until that time, our role on this earth is to live this way, not so that God might be pleased with us at the end, but because God has made us alive and made us subjects of, a king, of his kingdom, we can now live this way to be a display of the kingdom that is coming. Do you see that? Do you see the huge ramifications for us as a church that God isn't just concerned with our individual obedience and lives. He knits us together so that together we be a kingdom culture that reflects the kingdom that will come. Listen to and I end with this, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British pastor back in the mid-1900s, started pastoring in London, Westminster Chapel there before World War II, preached all the way into the 70s, I believe, died in the early 80s. I love this cat. He's probably my third favorite Brit behind Spurgeon and William Arnault. The reason why he's third on the list is because he didn't have an awesome beard like Spurgeon and William Arnault did. But one reason I like my boy Martin Lloyd-Jones is that he was pastoring in London during World War II. I think I've told this story before. The Germans would bomb London, this big, huge chapel, as he was preaching. It would rattle the building, the, the chapel there. Plaster and dust would fall from the ceiling. He'd pause for the dust to settle, and then he'd keep going. <laughs> oh, man, that takes some, takes some grit. That's all I've got to say. Uh, he, he, he was the man. But listen to what he wrote about this Sermon on the Mount, what it should function in the life of, a, of not just an individual Christian, but a church. He says, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message though it may hate it at first. This is how revival comes. That must also be true of us as individuals. It should not be our ambition to be as much like everybody else as we can, though we happen to be Christian, but rather to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as we can possibly be. Our ambition should be to be like Christ. The more like Him, the better. And the more like Him we become, the more we shall be unlike everybody who is not a Christian. I love the simplicity of that old Brit. He's saying, in essence, friend, we believe some strange and foolish things. We believe that sin hasn't just neutered us, it's killed us. And we believe that we're hopelessly separated from God because of our sin. And we believe that God became a man and took on flesh and lived the life that we should have lived and then laid down that perfect life, God himself, the Son, on the cross. He laid it down and died that the king, who's unlike any other king that we know, 
the king actually died for his people even though he was completely righteous and he absorbed the punishment that should have been theirs. And then this king, because he's God, because he's eternally righteous and because he didn't deserve to die, God the Father raised him from the grave and now this king is risen and he has ascended and he's at the right hand of the Father and he commands all people everywhere to not trust in themselves, not trust in their own intellect, not trust in their own relative morality, not to trust in how they can take bits and pieces of this sermon and say, well, I'm doing this pretty good and this guy's not doing this, so I'm better than him. Not to trust in that because he says that that sort of morality is like filthy rags before God, but to trust in what he has done to obey the Father for us. And when we do that, we give evidence that he has made us alive, that he's taken our dead hearts and he's resurrected them and he's put us together with other people so that now together as a local church, we can live in this strange, peculiar, countercultural way to be a light that God holds up to draw other dead people to himself. And the church is to be, as we'll read in a few weeks, like a city set on a hill that God draws dead people to. It should be like a, this is a picture for you, Will Hawkel like this, he's a walking dead fan. The church is, there you are Will, the church is like a city set on a hill and God is bringing dead people, zombies. He's drawing them by his Holy Spirit, wooing them, wooing them. Not saying, do better if you live according to these words. But because of his kind and sovereign grace, because he has determined to save a great multitude of people for himself, he's saying to dead people out there, all across every land, get up! Rise, Lazarus! Get up! Get up! Now, where you couldn't obey, because you're alive now, obey! Not perfectly, but walk now. Walk with other formerly dead people up that hill to the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, and live together in a way to display the king who came once as a lamb, who's coming again as a lion, who will finally and fully eradicate everything that is against you, everything that exalts itself against his name, and he will establish his kingdom on this earth in glory, and you shall live forever and ever and ever. And he, across every land, through his people, through that beacon on the hill, the local dusty, jacked-up church that is trying to create a culture that models this way of life, he is saying to zombies, get up, get up, come, 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 and be a subject, a citizen of the king. Friends, maybe he's saying that to you today. And maybe you came in here thinking that, boy, I need to do better. Somebody invited me to cross point and I need to get my life together. Friends, you can't. But God can call you from death to life. And maybe he's doing that right now. Are you even hearing these words? Are they making your heart beat? Are you sensing that this could be you? Friends, I believe that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is causing you to pass from death to life. You don't need to do anything. You need to take in the oxygen of the gospel and breathe out faith and repentance and put your hope not in your morality, not in trying to do better, but in Christ. Friends, do that right now. Do that right now. Let's pray. Father, as we begin this series 
of messages through this glorious sermon. May we, may you orient us the right way. May these words humble us. May they call us to be a type of people that live together in such a way that you use our lives, our strange countercultural lives as a local church, that you use us together as a beacon, as a display, as a clearer picture to a lost and onlooking world of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom where the king is good and gracious. Lord, may we be that type of people increasingly in these coming weeks and months. And may you call dead people to come alive, people that are part of the kingdom of this world, dead in their sins, running away from you in rebellion. May you call a great multitude of dead people to life so that they can be citizens of your kingdom and under your gracious rule, not by their works, but because of the faith that you you have given them as a gift that they then can see and savor and trust in the work of the Savior King Jesus who died so that they could become citizens of the kingdom. Lord, may we do that. May you do that. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.